You're listening to a Bayer podcast. Better Agriculture takes listeners behind the scenes of the world's largest agricultural research and development program. Find out what's new and next in Australian agriculture with the Bayer Crop Science team. Well, hello and welcome to the Better Agriculture podcast. My name is Ed Gannon. In this episode, we're exploring food security and what it means for consumers and for the future of agriculture. First, I'd like to welcome our first guest today, Warren Inwood, who is Managing Director of Bayer Crop Science Australia New Zealand. Welcome, Warren. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here with you. I should say the newly minted Managing Director of Bayer Crop Sciences. You've only been in the MD role for the past four months or so, is that correct? Yes, I've uh, just started in this role from around October, but having said that, I've been in the business for quite some time, so uh, in various you know, commercial roles. So uh, I'm not new to Bayer or, or not new to uh, Australian agriculture. So before we get into the food security issue, I'd probably like to give you a bit of an idea of what Bayer does and what projects you've got going on at the moment. Thanks, Ed. Bayer is obviously a global company and we traditionally supply crop protection products, seeds and traits uh, globally and sort of operate in about 140 countries uh, globally. In Australia, we've been here for a very long time and very proud that we've had a long track record of innovation and uh, supplying good quality product uh, to Australian growers. So you're only new in the chair. What what sort of achievements would you like to see? under your watch over the next sort of 12 months or even over the next few years? What have you got in the pipeline? Some of the areas I'd like to you know, invest time and energy in is, is really focusing on increasing our rate of innovation. I think we've done a good job over the last uh, five to 10 years, but it's probably an area that I think there's still some efficiencies to be gained. And it's probably an area that we need to try and improve on in terms of our rate of innovation. So that's one area of focus. The other is really around our people and culture. I think, as we've discussed, it's not only a, an issue in agriculture, but across all industries, you know, access to talent has been a real challenge. So talent retention, talent development, you know, supporting a more equity and diversity in our operation. I think that's important across ANZ and is probably you know, one of the key areas of uh, focus of the business as well. And from my, my perspective, me personally, just uh, really trying to you know, focus on that to ensure we've got a great pipeline of talent to help manage the business going forward. Yeah, as you say, you're, you're certainly not alone there. The the, uh, the talent um, issue is not just an agriculture issue, but it's across the board. So that's a, a real challenge for you, I'd, I would imagine. So now let's... Um, We'll turn to food security and uh, join us in the conversation. I'd like to welcome Caitlin McConnell, who is the chair of Future Farmers Network. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi, Ed. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be a guest on the Bayer podcast. Thanks for joining us. Probably first, we'd like to know a little bit about the Future Farmers Network. Can you tell us what it is and what does it do? Yes. So I am chair of the Future Farmers Network, which is a national not-for-profit in the agriculture sector. We are 20 years old and 
essentially the only national not-for-profit that helps to support the development and growth of every young person in agriculture. And we do that by harnessing partners such as Bayer in the industry to develop not only events, so networking events, but also practical upskilling and professional development opportunities for young Aggies. Uh, So some of our listeners may be familiar with the Young Beef Producers Forum in Roma that we've been hosting for 19 years now. And we also have relationships with the likes of National Farmers Federation, with the Young Farmers Council, as well as uh, Clayton Newts in Brisbane. They're they're a national law firm, but we have uh, professional development upskilling opportunities with partners there as well. And I mean, obviously, you're you're not a stranger to to farming. Have you got a, you've got a farming background? I do. So I am a sixth generation farmer, actually. I'm from Crowsbrook Station in Tugulawa, which is in southeast Queensland. And uh, I think like many of uh, my contemporaries, I was actually told by my parents not to be a farmer uh, growing up in the millennium drought, Um, hence why I initially and and continue to pursue a career in law. I'm also a a senior associate at Clayton Newts but very much passionate about the agricultural industry and work in our agri and food team at Clayton Newts and am in the process of uh, succession planning with my parents at Cresbrook. So I actually work remotely on the farm. We have uh, beef cattle operation and and historical uh, family property. So looking to to go into agritourism now. So ag has definitely been in my blood and, and certainly is. And it's been, um, yeah, an in- interesting process, I think, professionally to be able to combine uh, career in law and, and agriculture and, and get the two uh, intertwined and, and working harmoniously, so to speak. You sound like the embodiment of the um, the, the modern agriculture um, person, that you're a professional but you're also too still involved in farming. Warren, you've um, got a farming background as well? Yes, I do, Ed. sort of grew up on a small beef property between Bathurst and Blaney in New South Wales and uh, also studied agriculture at Charleston Uni in Wagga. So, uh, yeah, that provided a fantastic background and platform to my further career in, in Bayer, I guess, but worked on a cotton farm as well for four or five years as an on-farm agronomist. So had a background before joining Bayer in agriculture. And then um, in 2008, actually purchased the farm in Wagga. Uh, my family had, yeah, to Caitlin's point, uh, through some challenging periods in the 80s, actually uh, got out of our farming operation. Um, but yeah, I bought the property in 2008. It's a small wheat, canola and barley operation. But that's yeah, important. That makes me... Uh, makes me feel a lot more connected to the industry and to all the issues the growers face from a day-to-day perspective in running their business. Yeah, which is really important. And, and for both of you, that's a really important way to be, to have that practical experience and uh, and which would help us about our topic today, which is is food security. And that's what it's all about. So start off with talking to you, Caitlin, a definition. What is food security and where do you think Australia sits on the issue at the moment? Food security, as we're learning, is a very complex issue and certainly there's definitions internationally. Um, The most prominent is the UN definition, which came about through the Rome Declaration in 96, which effectively talks to the fact that all people at all times should have physical and economic access to sufficient Uh, safe and nutritious food. The Australian government hasn't landed on a specific definition of food security and indeed a lot of nations follow the influence and the example set by the UN 
Interestingly, in 2020, the Australian Institute of Family Studies, whilst relying on the UN definition, actually went further and and stipulated that food security or food is a fundamental human right and essentially went to explain that there should be regular marketplace access for all individuals in Australia and and families shouldn't have to resort to emergency food relief or begging or, or scavenging in some instances. In terms of my definition of food security, and, and this was an interesting question that that you posed to me uh, in preparation for this, Ed, notwithstanding sort of the work that I've done in this space, never have I stopped and, and said, well, how would I define it, so to speak? And I think the typical lawyer in me has taken influence from the UN example and the Australian example and added a bit of my own flavour, I guess. So I, I will read it in full and then qualify it a little bit. So the way I would define it, food security is when all industry sectors are working together through a national mechanism that respects and delivers the human right to food for all people at all times and contributes to nutrition, health and well-being, whilst also restoring and protecting nature is climate neutral, adapted to local circumstances and communities, and provides decent jobs and inclusive economies. Now, there's a lot in that, and we will unpack that, I'm sure, as part of this podcast. Uh, But essentially, the, the roundup of that is that the fundamental right to food is a basic human need and it should be a prominent discussion and factored in in all aspects of the economy, whether we talk about healthcare, industry and resources, defence and education. And, and that's why a true definition needs to lean on that. I think a true definition also needs to, in light of science and technology advances, but also the realities that we're seeing in day-to-day life, that agriculture has a fundamental role to play when we're talking about achieving net zero. And as a result, we need to be having regard to, you know, local circumstances and and communities and, and that circular economy discussion, but then also making sure that any opportunities and any discussions associated with ensuring food security and the influence that has on various policy sectors is also ensuring that we're maintaining decent jobs and inclusive communities. So, A bit there to unpack, Ed, but I think it's necessary given it is such a complex issue. Yeah, as you say, it's a um, very uh, precise definition you've given there and the the start off of it talking about working together sort of in a national framework with everyone working the same thing. So it'd be interesting to see the view of, of listeners about whether that's happening. Warren, what's your view on food security and where do you think it is in Australia at the moment? It's an interesting question. Historically, even since World War II, probably most Australians have had reasonable access to affordable, good quality food. And that's something that's that in the last few years that we've all experienced, which has changed, which is probably why there's been so much discussion globally and locally around food security. I think from an Australian standpoint, as Caitlin was mentioning, there's so many interdependencies to ensure a good quality supply of food. And that's going to take a lot of collaboration and harmonisation to really make an effect change, but will be critical. I think we've all realised now, even in Australia, we do have some vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, the one aspect, uh, I hate to give it away, but I was born in the 60s and we had 3 billion people on the planet. 
as of last year, we've got now 8 billion people. And that naturally is going to put a level of pressure on the global economy to provide affordable, safe and good quality food. And, and I guess to Caitlin's point, it's the affordability and access, which is the important point and one of the, the big problems we have to try and solve. I might just jump in there, Ed, and, and just sort of lean a bit into what Warren has been saying. Yeah, for sure. In Australia, the realities are when we broach food security here in Australia, people, generally speaking, neglect to think or appreciate that we have a food security issue. You know, we tend to think of, of, of other countries. Um, but the reality is that at the moment, one in six Australian adults are facing food insecurity and we've got around 1.5 million children facing food insecurity as well. So not only um, off the back of COVID-19, but as a result of natural disasters here in Australia, we've now got an influx of the employed poor, so to speak, which is individuals who do have full-time jobs, but are increasingly relying on food banks and school food programs here in Australia. So it's certainly an emerging issue here and it's not about how the discussion shouldn't be how Australia can help feed the world, and there's certainly we, we play a huge role in that, but also how our supply chains here in Australia can ensure that our own individuals here are, are maintaining a level of food security. Yeah, as you say, I mean, just recently we've had the headlines about the uh, Australian food production in 22-23 is estimated to be $90 billion and exports of $75 billion. You look at those headlines and think, well, what's the problem? So, But you don't see the other issue, as you, as you point out, Caitlin. There's, there's actually an inquiry at the moment going on. It's the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Agriculture Inquiry into Food Security in Australia. So much of our sort of conversation there will sort of look at both of you and your organisations have made submissions to that. So I just want to sort of look at some of the things that have come out of that. And Warren, I'll go to you first. Bayer's submission focuses heavily on the science of food production. Can you give us some details on what Bayer would like to see in that area? Well, first of all, yeah, I'd like to commend the government for actually having the inquiry because I think that's a very positive step in trying to address you know the issues and and as Caitlin was saying, you know, how, how first of all can we address to provide you know affordable food for the Australian people, but uh, more importantly also how we can continue to contribute to the global support as well. So that's that's commendable that they did this from a Bayer's perspective. We did a broad uh, look at where we thought you know, some of the key areas and focus areas need to be, and science innovation is you know, will, will play a critical role. And I, I mentioned the population growth. You know, we also have less arable land available uh, to farm uh, due to urbanisation and, and so forth. So I think more importantly, we, we will need to continue increasing our productivity. Australian growers have done a fantastic job to be perfectly frank. They're some of the most innovative growers in the world. They're very adaptive. They don't necessarily always play on a on a level playing field. You know, there's very few subsidies for Australian growers. And I'm for one not promoting the use of subsidies, but we also have to acknowledge that we are competing against growers globally, which do have access to significant subsidies with the US Farm Bill, the European subsidies that are in place, uh, and so forth. So Part of that, and uh, in a probably long-winded way I'm getting to, is is how important science and innovation is to help Australian growers remain productive. And they're under a lot of cost pressure, and having access to the latest innovations 
and allowing them to utilize that will definitely help productivity and, and help efficiency. So that, that'll be critical. You know, we also spoke about in the submission areas around investment in rural and regional transport infrastructure. So there's certainly the need to increase efficiency and, and reduce freight costs and so forth. And as as a grower, and I'm sure Caitlin's experienced this as well, particularly around harvest time, uh, some of the bottlenecks we get in terms of moving grain from one location to another and through our ports can be time consuming and is probably not that efficient compared to global standards and is an area that uh, the government certainly needs to uh, look proactively at in terms of investment in the future. One of the issues on the science side of things is the um, harmonising the gene technology definitions and regulations. Tell me about that. Is there an issue there at the moment with that? Uh, Yes. I mean, we have a fairly heavily regulated uh, process of registering not only crop protection products, but also on on the gene and technology trait side. And I think that's an area that certainly we need to, to focus on and we'd like the government to focus on. In terms of importing seed for testing and so forth, we, we do have you know, long processes which really take significant time and slow us down in terms of our rate of innovation uh, because of those processes and policies. So you know, what we're asking is for the government to actually review that and, and become a bit more aligned to what the global standards are, which would allow more certainty to industry and growers in terms of having access to the latest technologies coming through. So, Caitlin, you um, put in a submission, which is an incredibly detailed submission. You had a big recommendation for an independent review into the Australian food system and the the existing national food security frameworks. Why do you want a review and, and how would that review work? So the reason why I, rather than answering the important and, you know, strategic terms of reference in the request by the federal government in this inquiry. The reality is on on viewing the issue of food security, and I think you could glean it from my definition, is that there's much more to the issue of food security than just really looking at food availability, accessibility in terms of, you know, transport and logistics and agricultural productivity. What I've gleaned through study, but also significantly uh, the UN Secretary General has identified, is that any national mechanisms relating to food security really need to have fundamental regard to the to the role food plays in day-to-day life. And that means that recognising that, you know, the components of social health, environment uh, and economic components of food are interdependent. And therefore, when it comes to any solution associated uh, with food security, it really has to be resolved together rather than in isolation. What I have done in my recommendation is take examples from overseas. So in 2020, uh, the UK actually did an independent review into its food system. And that independent inquiry was done by a renowned chef in the UK and really looked at the elements of food culture and the role that the food strategy and a food plan in the UK had on complementary systems such as healthcare and trade. And some of those recommendations really lent on industry 
as well as growers and saying, look, there's a, there's a bigger picture here than just our productivity as producers, but also our logistics frameworks. We need to be going into the crux of, again, the fundamental role food plays. Canada have also done a similar thing and they have a food plan, again, which looks at the crucial role that food plays in all aspects of the economy. And critically, they have dipped into the role food security plays in national security. And my interest in food security has come out of studying my Master of Law and what I wanted to do was really draw my skills in law and ag together. And the more reading I did, the more recommendations were coming up that agriculture and food is so interrelated to national security as well as climate change. I thought these are discussions that need to be had. So the recommendation I guess that I've come up with is it's only – I guess it's a reality that whenever there is a government inquiry, there can be some sort of reluctancy from some industry bodies and there is limited scope too for people to make submissions. And what I've gleaned from overseas examples is that when there is an independent reviewer, which is what I'm recommending, uh, there's an independent review into our food system, that people may be more inclined to actually make submissions what I think it would look like is effectively we need all facets of the economy and, and ministerial portfolios. And in, in my um, submission, I actually set out how every ministerial portfolio, including attorneys general, education, defence, healthcare, fit into food security, need to be considering how its frameworks and policies are developed and how that that plays in food. How it will work, obviously this process takes time. So it would be a matter of, you know, setting up a terms of reference, engaging an independent reviewer who arguably, in my view, should have experience in law and agriculture, as well as a, a dedicated support framework in order to help assist with the independent review and, and research, but then have a consultation period and actually look to specifically developing a national food security strategy that has regard to the fundamental role food, water and natural resources play in satisfying fundamental human needs. From there, that national food security strategy should mandatorily inform the development of long-term economic strategies across all ministerial portfolios and the reason being is that those policies should look to mitigate uh, the effects of climate change through the interaction of, of efforts made in complementary sectors. And I lean into the climate change and mitigating that in circumstances where, as a litigator, we are now seeing an influx of climate change litigation globally, and Australia is now the second largest, well, the, the second country in the world to have the largest body of climate change litigation. Naturally, uh, mining and resources sectors have been first hit in respect of that, and now it's agriculture that's next in the firing line, so to speak. So ensuring that we are firming up our processes and practices to not only ensure our food security domestically and globally is important, but it also has a role to play in terms of, of firming up what we do in the climate change space. But then long term, as I said, healthcare, education, uh, industry and resource and that sort of thing. So, again, a bit of a long, long-winded answer um, and a lot of work to be done. But I, I really think looking, using examples from overseas and the recommendations from the UN Secretary General, we need to be doing more than just looking at 
agricultural productivity and food availability, we need to be looking at every single aspect of our lives because it comes down to the fact that we can't function without food and fibre and it's uh, very fundamental to, to what we do day to day. The long answers because it's not a simple subject. Hey, Ed, could I just ask Caitlin? Yeah, Warren. Climate change litigation, could you just give some background to that? I've, I'm not aware of any any major litigation around climate change. I was just wondering, could you just unpack that a little bit? Certainly. So what we're seeing, again, it's an emerging space and the majority of cases to date have been organised groups of, of interest, interested individuals who have really been sort of the first cab off the rank, as I said, is mining and resources. So you've got bodies of individuals who are coming together as, I guess, a class action, so to speak, to actually make claims against the government to prevent them from opening new coal mines or providing approvals, environment approvals to actually, you know, um, open mines and that sort of thing. What we're also seeing too in the banking sector and here in Australia, there have already been some actions, we call it shareholder activism. And this is where, you know, I am, for example, I may be a shareholder of a bank and one of the bank's roles as part of its investment strategy is to not only invest its finances in certain industries, but also to lend money to the likes of agriculture or mining and resources. We've got pockets of shareholders now that are actually filing applications against banks and even insurance companies to say that we as your shareholders don't believe that you are satisfying the obligations that you should be meeting globally in respect of the Paris Agreement, but also not meeting aspects of the Corporations Act to ensure that you as a business are not contributing to climate change and are actually adequately recording the mitigation strategies that you as a business are undertaking in order to mitigate climate change. Where that extends to agriculture is that shareholder activism can ultimately and is ultimately having an effect on the ability of banks to lend to certain projects. We're also seeing the inability of some insurance companies to insure agricultural companies in circumstances where that specific company hasn't developed a framework on how it is going to mitigate climate change. And when I talk about frameworks, we've seen some organisations here in Australia, as an example, who, uh, so AACO, a publicly listed company, has worked intrinsically to develop a sustainability framework and we're seeing it in some of the commodity groups as well. And that is not only important to let consumers and our customers know what those organisations are doing to mitigate climate change, but it's also a safeguard from potential civil and criminal proceedings really um, because the emergence of law is such that if as a director of an organisation or um, a business generally, if you're not adhering to some of the UN principles that are filtering through into our legislation, um, you can be liable for that, so to speak, whether it be shareholders, consumers or through the likes of ASIC um, or, you know, the Australian Accounting Standard Boards are also demonstrating uh, the need for organisations to have the crucial element of impact on nature 
and natural capital in their balance sheets as well. So again, quite complex. And sort of never, 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 never a short answer, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and and sort of the more questions you ask, the more there is to unpack because it is significantly complex. When yeah, climate change, food security, it's all it is all in one really. So Warren, as the managing director of a, a very large company at the epicenter of agriculture. I mean, obviously, climate change is, is a significant factor, but what practical role does it play in what you do and, and how has that changed over the last few years? Good question, Ed. So probably from a practical standpoint, obviously, it, it is impacting uh, in terms of how we approach our forecasting and supply chain initiatives in the short to medium term. It also, you know, we are seeing shifts in terms of yield and shifts in demographics of where growers are, are growing various crops. Those patterns we are certainly seeing. And then we have to actually plan in terms of our investments going forward, where, where in terms of innovation, can we support climate change impacts on, on farmers? And that is you know, looking at, at technologies that can perhaps provide some traits where we might be able to provide some drought tolerance on, on certain crops and products which just allow higher productivity in the areas where we have higher yielding areas where we can increase our productivity, increase our output. So they're, they're areas, certainly from an innovation standpoint, it is changing where we invest our funds and investment dollar. And that's an area which we'll have to keep exploring as climate change takes uh, impact. The other big issue at the moment is inflation. And Caitlin, you, re- you referred to the working poor before. Specifically in relation to food security, things like high input costs, changes in buyer habits, how do you see that playing out? Is it going to be something that's going to be for a long time or as you see it's a short time? Caitlin, first to you, I suppose. Again, I don't think that's an easy one to answer (laughs) because there are so many factors at play. I think the reality is that the situation we find ourselves in in terms of, you know, inflation and cost of living and navigating well, I think it's going to be quite a while that we find ourselves in this in this situation. And that really comes to, again, when we're talking about these sorts of issues, they're often done in isolation. And I, I think the only way in which we can ensure that we've got sustainable communities, sustainable economies, is making sure that we're approaching every issue cumulatively, so to speak. And this is where I think food security is such a grounding issue when we talk about how we go to solve climate change, how we go to solve the healthcare crisis, how are we going to ensure there's adequate access to healthcare and adequate education services. And the real leveller is the fundamental access to food because we can't achieve or do any of those things without food and the sustainability of communities in terms of energy and resources and even crime um, can also be directly linked back to food. So not an easy answer. I think we are going to be in this predicament for some time and I think it's we're not going to be able to find tangible solutions until we are looking at issues and solutions as a whole and again this is where I think food security is a great leveler because we all need food 
and regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on, it is it is and should be an apolitical issue. So I think this inquiry and where agricultural production fits in to the economy generally and making sure that we're adequately looking at it from all angles rather than just in isolation is going to be an incredible starting point for how we as a country but also globally can maintain sustainability in the long term. Warren, you're, yeah, you're this. Just to Caitlin's point about those interdependencies, actually, that that's the, the biggest challenge, actually, because, uh, you know, for example, we can make decisions around increasing our capacity of, of local formulation and manufacturing, and that's one area that we have focused on the last few years to increase that capacity. But again, there's so many independencies of the supply chain, freight, bringing in raw materials. So even you can have the inherent strategy of increasing local formulation, but unless you have the right strategies to allow free flow of raw materials into Australia, and that has border force issues, has port issues, there are many factors which can impact that flow of of raw materials and then you overlay that with our skill shortage so you can have the best laid plans but in reality having access to talent to enough people coming out of university uh, through manufacturing engineering degrees to operate um, the manufacturing plants so there's many areas that can go wrong they are all interlinked in some way shape or form and on top of that we had and this got a lot of press throughout 21 and 22 and that was the lead time and the inventory of fuel we had in Australia. And you can imagine we can have all the intent to grow good quality, affordable food in Australia, but if we only have six weeks, eight weeks cover time on fuel, then Australian agriculture would grind to a halt very quickly. So they're all complex issues and areas that we need a lot of collaboration actually between industries. And as as Caitlin pointed out, between you know, government agencies and various government departments it needs a a holistic uh, strategy not not in isolation absolutely warren and i and just laboring on that point because i think it is a particularly important one you know australia we do have an incredible primary production base and our producers do a significant job not only ensuring we have enough food and fiber but also we're a global supplier but the reality is it's those interconnected issues associated with trade disputes and forced migration and labour shortages that have actually made the UN recognise Australia since 2018 as maintaining a level of food insecurity, which therefore links to maintaining a level of national insecurity uh, because it you do then link to uh, forced migration, the geopolitical tensions and and the, the trickle-on effects that that can have to us globally. So, again, just reiterating, it's a very complex issue, but food and fibre and our ability to produce and feed not only ourselves but also other, other countries globally is at the crux of everything we do and in particular, you know, shoring up national security as well. And I think the one thing that both of you are presenting really well is how complex this is. I ask a question and it goes off into a dozen different issues because that's the way food security is working and it has to work because there's so many parts to it. So that that's the sort of the, the overriding theme that I'm getting out of this. Warren, I just wanted to quickly ask you about digital agriculture 
where do you see that on-farm performance in the next 12 months and perhaps in the next 10 years and what, what sort of impact would that have on food security? Yeah, it's probably just another one of the tools in the farming toolbox that we actually need to continue on that productivity gain, really. So I think digital agriculture, that's a very broad term, but I think innovations in that digital space, they're definitely required and I think they definitely are coming. And I think uh, year on year, we're, we're making good ground on various digital tools that are allowing farmers you know, access to better quality data and data that they can u- utilise then for decision-making on their farm. Uh, and that can only help farmers become more productive, more efficient. So I think that will play a key role. Um, I mean, Bayer is also investing, as other companies are, Bayer is investing heavily in, in this space. Recently, we've launched a tool called FieldView, which does allow growers a very seamless platform to capture various uh, data points from their farming operation and to facilitate that decision-making process. And we only launched that in uh, 2022. And we have a, you know, we have a long way way to go to continue uh, delivering various tools in that digital space, but they will be critical for, for our growers. Um, again, as, as, I, as I said, and, and Caitlin also mentioned this, we have some of the most innovative farmers in agriculture Uh, in Australia. They do adopt technologies. If you can demonstrate value to a grower that a technology is going to add value to their farming operation, they adopt it generally very quickly. And they do that because they are under significant pressure in terms of the cost and management of their farming operation and, and to deliver those efficiency gains in size, scale and productivity that, that they need to compete. And that really is a point also that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like for like, depending on which crop you're talking about. But like an Australian wheat grower is not necessarily playing on the same level playing field, uh, so to speak, as opposed to a US wheat farmer or a European wheat farmer. So that is, is also driving the requirement for Australian growers to access the latest innovations, whether it be the digital space, whether it be new crop protection products or access to the latest um, gene and trade technologies. They're so true. Now, we're just about uh, finishing up today. I just want to ask you about the inquiry, the government's inquiry. Um, Caitlin, I know what you would like to see out of it, but what would you consider a win from a recommendation from that inquiry? What, What do you probably practically expect and what would you consider a win? Practically and ideally, I think a win would be recognition that a national food security strategy needs to be developed and implemented and that that national food security strategy has not only regard to the UN Sustainable Development Goals as recommended by the UN Secretary-General, but is used as a basis by all ministerial portfolios to inform their plans and policies and any legislation associated with what it is that that industry does. Because again, uh, coming back to that fundamental role that food plays in the day-to-day life and we can't adequately, in my view, create any solutions or plans or strategies associated with any ministerial portfolio, whether it be climate change, education, healthcare and the like, without having regard to food security. Warren, what do you think would come out of this inquiry? I think the government has an opportunity to actually put some uh, 
if I call it, quick wins on the table because, uh, yeah, we have various functions and government departments which are quite bureaucratic and, uh, and in all fairness, quite slow to deliver regulatory frameworks and to allow easy and quick access to innovation. So uh, the government has an opportunity to review that and to actually put some policy change in to allow some of those recommendations, which will definitely increase the rate of innovation into the Australian market. It'll allow access of Australian growers to access innovation quicker, and that will contribute significantly to our food security for Australia and improvement in our biosecurity. So I think there are some quick wins, but it's just a matter of addressing some of those uh, functions and, and policy and process. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, and just a note, the uh, the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Agriculture Inquiry into Food Security in Australia, it hasn't yet produced its report. And uh, in fact, at the time of this podcast production, it's still taking submissions and conducting hearings. So thanks, Caitlin, for joining us. And thank you, Warren, for taking time for an important discussion. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Caitlin. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Warren. It's been a pleasure. And a special thank you to our audience for listening. Make sure you tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and keep an eye out for future episodes as we tackle the big issues of better agriculture. We'll catch you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Better Agriculture, brought to you by Bayer Crop Science Australia. Better Agriculture is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woi, Wurrung and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and edited on the lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to all Elders past and present. Listen to our other episodes to meet more of the Bayer Crop Science team and hear about their groundbreaking work on solutions for Australian agriculture.